All right, guys, how we doing? Great. Glad to have you here tonight. Uh, my name is Tyler Durham, and I'm the grow pastor here at Christ Chapel. And uh, Bill is in Hong Kong, as most of y'all probably already know. And uh, yeah, Victor, you know he's in Hong Kong. Uh, he, he will be back on Tuesday. And next weekend, he's going to come 10 minutes early for class on Sunday night. And he's just going to share his experience in Hong Kong and kind of what we're doing uh, the mission work that we're doing there. And so if you'd like to hear more about what we're doing in Hong Kong, just come here maybe 10, 15 minutes early and he'll talk to you about it. So tonight is kind of a standalone um, message. So next week he's going to jump back into the normal routine. I think it's in Job that y'all are uh, going to dive into. So tonight I get to talk about the Bible. And so what I want to do is pray for us and then we're going to be bouncing around a little bit in, in the scriptures tonight. We're not going to be hanging out in one particular passage. And so it's probably better to just follow along with me, and I'll have most of the verses up here. Um, but if you'd like to follow along in your Bible, you definitely can do that as well. So glad to be here. Let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in. Well, Father God, we thank you for um, what you're doing here at Christ Chapel through all the many ministries, through... Um, all the multitude of staff and lay leaders, and we just pray your continued blessing on our church. And Lord, we thank you for uh, your word that you've given us, this, this uh, treasure we call the Bible and uh, the, the gospel that you've declared and revealed to us in, in this word. Lord, may we treasure it, may we uh, protect it, and may we speak it to the ends of the earth. And so tonight, Lord, I pray that you would bless um, our time together. And Lord, I pray that tonight, uh, by the end of this talk, we would have more confidence and trust in the scriptures than we've ever had before. Lord, we love you. We praise you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So recently, I wrote a little blog post on uh, the difference between scripture as authority and our personal preference as authority. I think we're in a bit of a crisis in our culture when it comes to where we find authority and where we look to for answers in, in this life that we live, especially here in the United States. And one uh, author named Oz Guinness says this about this idea of personal preference. He says that our modern culture has shifted the church from a stance under authority to, to, um, to one of preference. So we've shifted from a stance under authority to one of preference. And another author, Charles Taylor, says this, and then we're going to talk about this for a minute. Uh, he says that we're operating under this self-determining freedom. Okay, and he says, The idea that I am free when I decide for myself what concerns me rather than being shaped by external influences. Preference and choice alone has become our final authority. So here's, here's kind of what that looks like. Let's see. So in a traditional context, what many people call the pre-modern context, you have the, the person, and then you have this external thing. Pardon me? Is that too small? I think this is as good as we're going to get in terms of the, the darkness of it. Let me try the black. Look at that. That's like the jumbo. Look at that. <laughs> that is amazing. How's that? Is that a little better? There we go. Person. I'll put it over here. So this view that they're talking about, the traditional view, is that we find authority outside of ourselves in something external. Uh, some people find that authority in tradition. Some people find it in their culture, in their family. It's, it's an authority. It's a view of truth that is, that is given to the person from the outside. And, of course, we believe that the Bible is the external authority, the chief authority. But what Charles Taylor and Oz Guinness are saying is that now in our culture today, we have buffered ourselves from any external authority. 
And so if we've buffered ourselves from any external authority, where do we look to find the answers to life, to find where to make, how to make decisions, where we go to make decisions? If we've, if we've blocked ourselves off from the external, where do we have to go to find the answers? Internal. So the modern person is what's called a buffered self, meaning there's no input from the outside. I have to look inside to find the answers. And so unfortunately what that means is, is that there are a lot of people in our culture today that are basing their decisions, their actions, their who they marry, where they live, what job they take, what moral decisions they make on how they feel and what their preferences are, not what this external authority we call the Bible says. And you can see how that can be devastating to someone's life because we all know that our emotions are a roller coaster. And one day we feel one way, the next day we feel another. And if that becomes our ultimate authority, then we're in big trouble. And that's what we're seeing today is uh, personal preference and choices and options and the rejection of any external authority in living our lives. And so we as Christians are, are pushing back against that mentality, that modern or postmodern mentality. And so before I jump into why we can trust the Bible, I kind of want us to, to realize that, that we, we have to see the Bible as, as our ultimate authority, that external revelation from God. And so the rest of our time together tonight, I want to kind of look at what, what gives us the right to put our trust in this thing we call the scriptures above all the other competing authorities in life. The word of God has the power to change our individual lives, transform our churches, and bring renewal to our society. Until it takes its rightful place as the final authority in each of our lives, we'll never see a great work of God. So, Let's jump in. You've got your notes right there in front of you. And what I want to do is walk through some of these key areas. And if you have questions along the way, I know Bill uh, has a tendency to, to not want to, want to hijack the class with questions, and I definitely can understand that. I kind of like playing off questions. So if you have a thought, have a question, raise your hand. I might call on you. I might not. But we'll, uh, we'll go through this together. So can we trust the Bible? These are just a few key quotes um, to, to get us going. E.J. Young wrote a uh, commentary. He's written numerous commentaries. He's a theologian. He says, The Bible, according to its own claims, is breathed from God. To maintain that there are flaws or errors in it is the same as declaring that there are flaws or errors in God himself. So if you question the word of God, you're essentially questioning God himself. And then John Murray, another theologian, says, if the Bible does not witness to its own infallibility, then we have not right to believe that it is infallible. So here's what that means. Ultimately, we've got to look to what the scriptures say about itself to know whether it's authoritative or not. And some people might say, well, that's a circular argument, that if you're trying to defend the authority of the scriptures by looking to the scriptures, that you're just creating a circular argument but, but that's the case with any appeal to a final authority. If someone believes that reason is the ultimate authority, then how do they defend that position? They defend it through reason. If somebody believes that science is the ultimate authority, then how do they defend that? By using the tools of science to defend that, that authority. And so anyone who claims this is the highest authority has to appeal to that thing to prove it. So there is a sense in which... It is circular, but the fact of the matter is what the Bible has to say about itself is unique and different than any other book that's ever been created in the world. Numbers 23, 19, and I'm just going to go through a few. There's, there's dozens and dozens of scriptures that the Bible uh, refers to itself, but we're just going to go through a few of them here. Uh, Numbers 23, 19, this is in your notes. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? The scriptures are the spoken word of God that are written down. And if he said it, he will fulfill it. Psalm 12, 6, the words of the Lord are pure words like silver refined in a furnace on the ground. Purified seven times. Perfectly pure, the word of God. 
Proverbs 35, every word of God proves true. In Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. 2 Samuel 7, 28, and now, O Lord, your God and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Hebrews 6, it is impossible for God to lie. 2 Timothy 3.16, we all know this one. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Uh, And then Jesus says in John 10 that scripture cannot be broken. The fact of the matter is, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in, in all the different books of the Bible, the understanding is that this word of God, this revelation that we call the Bible, 66 books written over thousands of years, telling the same story, is the authoritative word of God. It is true. It is pure. It is something that you can bank your life on. It is trustworthy. 2 Peter one twenty one. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then finally, 1 Peter one twenty two to 25 Having purified your souls by your obedience... To the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. So how are we born again? Through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. The gospel. And Peter goes on, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So you get the picture. The Bible seems to consider itself authoritative and from the lips of God. And it calls us to do the same as well. So what did Jesus believe about the Bible? I'm just going to run through through a few things and, and reference a few verses But essentially, he believed the scriptures were useful. And this is based on what we know of him in the gospel accounts, what is written about him. He he obviously believed that the scriptures were useful. They were historically accurate. He believed the scriptures should be taught and studied. And he believed the scriptures were worth submitting your life to. Um, This is a great book, Robert Saucy, uh, just called Scripture. But it's just a good uh, general lay-level overview of the scriptures. But he has this great little paragraph on Jesus' use of the entire Old Testament. And he just kind of runs through this, so y'all be patient with me for just a sec. He says, uh, um, Among the many people and events Jesus mentioned are the creation of Adam and Eve and the institution of marriage, Matthew 19, 4 through 6, the death of Abel, 23, 35, the days of Noah and the flood, 24, 37 to 38, the destruction of Sodom, Abraham, he mentions Isaac and Jacob, the appearance of God in the burning bush, the life of David, Solomon, the ministry of Elijah, and the martyrdom of the prophet Zechariah. He also referred to God's miraculous provision of the manna, the death of Lot's wife, the bronze serpent, and Jonah and the great fish. Each of these times that Jesus mentions these accounts, he's, he's not mentioning them as some uh, you know, allegory or figurative event, mythical event that happened. He, he is treating these things as historical events. Uh, any questions up to this point? I mean, this is pretty basic stuff. Yes, sir. That's a great question. I'm going to get into that in more detail, but I'll just tell you this, that um, the Hebrew Bible and what the Hebrews followed in the, the, really up to the first century before the Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint, the Hebrew Bible consisted of 22 books. But these 22 books encompass R39. So it's the same material. They just organized it a little differently. The law, the prophets, and the writings were the three major categories of the Hebrew Bible. But they contain the exact uh, Old Testament books that we have today in our English Bibles. Now what happened, and I'm kind of skipping ahead, but we might as well do it now since we brought it up. What happened was as the, the, um, in A.D. 70, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. 
And at that point, the Romans were so frustrated with the Jews that they kicked them out. And uh, this event was called the Diaspora. They were dispersed all over um, that part of the world. And so they had to um, assimilate into different cultures at that time. And as you know, historically, this is the time of the Greco-Roman Empire. So this is the time where there was this unified um, power, the Roman Empire. This was a time where there was relative peace and, and ability to travel all over that part of the world. And so these Jews assimilated and they took, a lot of them began to uh, speak and, and, and use the Greek language. And so ultimately they needed to translate the Old Testament into the Greek language. And so what happened was when they did that, and there's a lot of you know, speculation as to what happened here, but when they translated it into the Greek uh, Old Testament called the Septuagint, they included some books that we now refer to as the Apocrypha. We don't know who included them. We don't know if they were included in all the, the, the Greek Septuagint, uh, the, the Greek Old Testament copies, because the Septuagint was not this, you know, it's not this idea of scribes sitting down and in a matter of months, writing out the whole Old Testament in Greek. The Septuagint is a collection of multitudes of different translations of the Hebrew Bible over centuries. And so somehow these books we call the Apocrypha were, were brought into that. And so there was debate about where do these books come from and why are they in here. But ultimately the Jews, as they dispersed all over uh, that part of the world began to return to their Hebrew roots because they were losing their identity. And in doing that, they went back to the Hebrew translation of the Old Testament. And the Hebrew translation of the Old Testament never included the Apocrypha. And in fact, there was arguments among Christians and Jews in the very early church because some of the Christians would, would quote from the Apocrypha and the Jews were like, hey, this is not, you know, this is not a part of the Old Testament. And uh, yeah, so that's briefly how that happened. We'll get into it in a little more detail. But the reality is from very early on, this Old Testament that they had back in BC days is the same exact Old Testament we have today, which is pretty amazing when you think about that. Yes, ma'am. Translations of the, the, Greek, the Hebrew Bible into Greek. It means there were scribes all over that were, that were copying portions of the Hebrew Bible. And, and you've got to remember that in that time, there wasn't this bound book that contained all of the Old Testament. There were scrolls, and, and so all of these different portions of the Old Testament were, were translated into Greek by different people over a period of centuries. And then they were accumulated together in, in what we call today the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. And that's most likely the, the Bible that many of the disciples were, would have known in the first century. Uh, there were, I don't know the exact number, but we're talking probably dozens and dozens. I mean, that... Uh, you know, the, in that time period, that was something that, that uh, I mean, old, it was necessary for all of these ancient works to be translated. We know about the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1948 were discovered. You know, all of those Jewish writings at some point were translated and, and carried on. They had to have scribes sit down with a, you know, word by word. And we'll get into that, how many copies of the New Testament that were translated and it's, it's shocking. But uh, let me continue on. Great, great questions. Yes, ma'am. Pardon me? So the Apocrypha are these separate books which have, from the very beginning, been debated as to whether they should have been included in the Greek Septuagint or not. They were never included in the Hebrew Bible. So when the Jews started going back to their Hebrew roots and using the Hebrew Bible, they did not accept this, the Apocrypha as, as part of the Old Testament. A variety of different people. I mean, it, 
yeah, it, yeah, so what, I'll, I tell you what, I'm going to get into what was the criteria, why were some books included in the Bible and some books not? I'm going to get into that here in a minute, and then if, if your question still isn't answered, you can jump back in. Sound good? Okay, let's go ahead and keep moving. So essentially, there's, there's many more verses, but, but Jesus clearly saw himself as someone who was going to fulfill the law, not abolish it. And he saw the Old Testament as something to be treated with authority, with respect, and is, is something to be useful. And throughout his ministry and throughout the Gospels, we see him quoting and alluding to the Old Testament over and over and over and over. So there's no debate about Jesus and his disciples on whether they saw the Old Testament as uh, divine revelation. So here, here's a controversial subject, the inerrancy of the Bible. Inerrancy means what it means, exempt from error, free from mistake. This, um, uh, this definition, this is important, does not describe any Bible that we use. Instead, it is describing only the original autographs, and we'll get into why that is in a minute. Uh, Wayne Grudem, theologian, says the inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Inerrant. The Bible tells the truth about everything it talks about. Now, here's the catch. The Bible doesn't talk about everything. Uh, the Bible is not a science book. The Bible was written in a pre-modern period without scientific jargon and there are things written in the Bible that may allude to things in the natural world. And what the Bible says and what science discovers will never contradict each other. But the fact is the Bible is not a science book. It is a book telling the story of God's um, plan to redeem a people for himself. That's the purpose. Genesis, the purpose of Genesis is not to uh, tell us exactly what happened scientifically. It's to tell us who created the world, God, what did he create it out of? Nothing. And what was, what was the purpose for which he created the world? His own glory. And, and are living that out here on earth. So here's a few misunderstandings of inerrancy. Number one is that it must hold a strict adherence to our rules of grammar. In 2018, you know, so there might be different sayings or uh, different ways of of writing that these authors wrote in the past that might not hold up to our rules of grammar, but nonetheless, that doesn't compromise the, the truthfulness of what they're saying. Number two, it must not have figures of speech or use common literary genres. Common misconception. There are a multitude of, of genres in the Bible. You've got poetry, you have history, you have letters, you have apocalyptic literature, you have... Um, you have a combination of those. And so as readers of the Bible, we have to try to understand the different genres in the Bible that we're reading. If we're reading the Psalms, we're going to read that differently than reading one of the Gospels. It's telling a, a historical event. David uses figurative language in the Psalms. You know, God's love stretches to the heavens. Because of the way it's written, because we know it's poetry, we don't literally think that God's love literally stretches to the heavens, we know that what he's saying is, is that God's love knows no end. Tracking with me? Number three, it demands a historical precision. There are times in the Bible where they will, um, you know, like in, I, th I think it's in Numbers, um, you know, God told them to wipe out all the, the people in, um, in Canaan, a particular group of people in, in Canaan. And they wiped them all out, but it seemed like in the narrative there were still some women and children that were living in that area that they just wiped out that were Canaanites. So sometimes the Bible literally says they wiped everyone out, and sometimes it, it uses generalities of, you know, here's another example. When they say 24,000 people were, you know, killed in this battle, um, there wasn't somebody back then that counted all 24,000 people at the battle. It, it was probably a, um, you know, they probably summed it up, give or take a few. That doesn't compromise the authority of the scriptures, the truthfulness, the inerrancy, the, the point that's being made. It's just the way humans write. 
And the fact is, the Bible is a book written by the Holy Spirit and a book written by man, and there's no contradiction in that. Somehow, by God's supernatural power, he's inspired the human authors to write what he wants them to write, and they left out what he wanted them to leave out. Um, Number four, it demands the technical language of modern science. The Bible does not demand that, and if it doesn't use that technical language, it doesn't compromise its truthfulness. It doesn't demand verbal exactness in the citation of the Old Testament by the New Testament. Sometimes the New Testament author is wanting to make a point by using an Old Testament passage that maybe is a little different than the point that passage was making in the Old Testament. And and the New Testament writers have every right to do that. It doesn't compromise the Old Testament passage and it doesn't compromise the New Testament passage. Another misunderstanding is that it demands that the sayings of Jesus must contain the exact words of Jesus. The fact is, the writers of the Gospels were with Jesus or had talked with people who were eyewitnesses with Jesus. And the writers sat down, and this is hard for us to understand. The writers sat down, let's take Matthew. He sat down and he thought, I'm going to write, I'm going to tell a story about Jesus. I'm going to give a historical account of Jesus because I know people need to hear the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do I want to do that? Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to use the lineage because I'm really, I really want the Jews to understand that Jesus traces his lineage all the way back. So that's what I'll do. I'll, I'll start with that. And then, you know, I want to tell this story, but I'm not going to tell this story. I mean, even John says that if they wrote down everything Jesus did, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain it. So each of the gospel writers decided what they wanted to include because they had a purpose in what they were writing. And the, the actual writing is what's authoritative and, and inspired. And sometimes they leave things out and sometimes they don't. Um, another misunderstanding is that it demands an exhaustive comprehensiveness of, angle, of any single account. There, there's no... There's no law that says Matthew has to give you every detail of an event in Jesus' life. And in fact, that's why you see sometimes when you're reading through the Gospels, like Mark and Matthew talk about the same story, but maybe there's a different angle. I mean, if, if we, if, let's say we, we hear a loud bang outside and it's two cars that crash and we run out there. And we hear from the people that were in the crash and they tell their story and they come and talk to me and tell me their story and they talk to you and tell you their story. And we see all these events. And if we all go back and write about the event, we might take different angles of the event, but it doesn't compromise the truthfulness of that event. So the gospel writers are writing about the same events, but for different purposes sometimes, which is not a contradiction. It's just a different emphasis in the same event. A few more. Uh, Number eight. Another misunderstanding is that it demands that the sources used by the writers are infallible and inerrant. Uh, I think of Acts chapter 17. Paul is in, uh, at Mars Hill in, uh, in Athens, and he's waiting for Timothy and I think Barnabas. And, uh, and he's just kind of looking around. And he's reading. He's studying the culture that he's in. And then he gets invited to speak at Mars Hill in front of all the great philosophers and what does Paul do? He talks about the unknown God. And he quotes from who? He quotes from one of their own poets. So that poet is not, in, that poet doesn't write inspired revelation from God. But when Paul used it in this historical account, when, when Luke used it in writing about Paul and Acts, that is inspired in how he used it in that in that Acts chapter 17. Not the poet who, who originally said those words. So just because they quote from, I think Jude uh, quotes from Enoch. And that doesn't mean Enoch is an authoritative canonical book. It just means that Jude wanted to use something in there to make a authoritative truth claim. Yeah. And then finally... Uh, Another misunderstanding about inerrancy is that it demands that all the copies of the original autographs must be inerrant as well. 
there are tens of thousands of copies of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, in all kinds of different languages that were oftentimes written by human you know, scribes that were translating it. Do you not think that some nights they got a little sleepy and, and they accidentally missed a word? And uh, because we have so many copies of the New Testament, we're able to see where, oh, they just missed this word. It, it, it doesn't change the meaning. It, it, it just, so there are errors in translations, but the original autographs are inerrant. That's what we believe. And some of you might be saying, well, how do you prove that the original autographs are inerrant when we don't have access to those? We just have copies of them. Great question. We don't have the original manuscripts. So it seems very convenient, Tyler, that you say that the original manuscripts are inerrant, but all the copies that we have today, you know, there could be some technical mistakes that are made. Um, very convenient, Tyler. Yeah, we, we, you can't argue against that. But here, here's something that's shocking. Um, for over 99% of the Bible, we know what the original manuscripts say. Of the 1% that, is ver- that has variations, they affect the meaning little, if at all. Meaning, a variant would be you put three or four uh, manuscripts side by side and one of them is missing a word. That would be a variant. And because of the amount of copies we have, we can clearly see what the word is that should have been there. Or they, they, they changed a word. And, but we see that in all the other manuscripts, it, it has the correct word. So we know it's just a variant that doesn't actually affect the meaning. Dr. Timothy Jones says the New Testament text is the best preserved text of the ancient world. Now look at this. And this is in your notes. Here's some famous uh, authors and, and figures from the history of civilization here that have written different things. So let's take uh, Caesar, for example. He wrote in the time of 100 to 44 B.C. So this is when he, when he made his writings. Now look at this. The earliest fragment copy that we have today, or whenever this was made, um, A.D. 900. That is a huge gap between when Caesar wrote the words and when the earliest manuscripts that we have. And so that's a thousand-year time span. And look at the number of manuscripts we have. Ten. Plato, once again, we have a 1,200-year span between the days that he wrote and the, the earliest manuscripts we have. Do you see many uh, scholars of Plato that spend their whole life trying to prove that Plato's writings are, are inaccurate or an error? You really don't. But we don't have a lot to stand on, seven manuscripts. Uh, you know, you go on down the line. This is in your notes. You can look at it. Here's Homer. Great book, Iliad, written in 900 B.C., earliest copy, 400 B.C., so that's only 500 years, not bad. Best one of the the different writers here. And we have 643 different manuscripts of Homer. Pretty amazing. Look at the New Testament. Written in A.D. 40 to 100, earliest fragment or copy, A.D. 125. 25 to 50 year span between the original writings and earliest copies. Number of manuscripts, 24,000 manuscripts, meaning these are different translations of different elements of the New Testament in different languages. And there are scholars today that will look at these different manuscripts, and this is way above my pay grade, but they can come to the conclusion that we can be sure that 99 we can be 99% sure that what is written in our new testaments is the in the original what the original autograph said just because of the multitude and quantity of manuscripts and the the closeness of date to the actual writings isn't that amazing i mean for me that that's just that that um you know, that's not necessarily going to convince someone who's not a believer that, oh, well, look at that. I'm going to start believing that God inspired that. But for believers, it's actually more of a comfort than probably for non-believers. I, I think for a non-believer, you know, it's going to take an act of God. But this is, this is pretty amazing. Um, here, here's another. So one of the uh, questions that a skeptic would have is, well, we don't have access to the original autographs. We just talked about that. Another one is that the Bible has contradictions in it. Uh, 
Have you all ever heard somebody say that? You know, I, I would believe the Bible, but what about all the contradictions? One good thing to do in that situation is not lose your mind and, and go on the defensive, but to just simply ask, let's walk through a few of those. I, you know, let's show me where some of these contradictions are and let's try to, uh, let's try to find maybe a resolution to that. So show me where. Oftentimes when you're able to look at the passage in detail, especially if you're able to do it in the original languages, you can solve the dilemma. It's also helpful to refer to commentaries and aids along the way. Guys, it's amazing how, or it, yeah, it's amazing how when you start looking at the context and you start interpreting scripture with scripture, meaning if Paul says something here and it's like, man, that doesn't seem right. Well, let's look at all the other things Paul said. And knowing all the other things Paul said, he can't be saying this because Paul's not an idiot. So, you know, there must be another explanation than that Paul uh, is committing these contradictions and uh, has these inconsistencies. Um, Roger Nicole, another uh, theologian, the inerrancy of Scripture is not dependent upon our ability to provide, in every case, a rational explanation of difficulties encountered. So just because we can't answer maybe a, some perceived con contradiction does not mean that the Bible's inerrant. It might mean that we are unable to, to reconcile these things. That's something to keep in mind. Um, I won't spend too much time on this, but th this is one way that people try to um, maintain the authority of the Bible, but also embrace the more secular criticism of the Bible of today. And let me tell you what I mean by that. So what this person would say is that, and I'm not, I don't want to spend too much time on this because it, it can get a little confusing, but what this person would say is that the Bible contains the Word of God. Now, this is tricky because what they're not saying is that the Bible is the Word of God. So what they're saying is if, if somebody out here says, hey, look at all these contradictions. Science has disproven you know, the Genesis account. We know that's wrong, therefore the Bible's wrong. And we, we know that you know, the, uh, the demonic possession in the New Testament is actually a medical condition. You know, you know, people that are trying to compromise and, and undermine the authority of the Bible, some people say, okay, we're not gonna, we're gonna let them have that. What we're gonna say is that the Bible is not the word of God, but it contains it when it talks about faith. So when it talks about salvation and faith in the gospel, that's the word of God. But when it's talking about the details, the historical events or the, the minutia around it, that's, that's, that can be erroneous, that can be wrong. You know, they were products of their own time. And it's a real subtle shift that, that has a uh, big consequences for your view of the Bible. 2 Timothy 3.16, what does it say? All scripture. Not some scripture. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable. Not just the parts that talk about being saved. Not just the parts that talk about uh, faith and belief. Every single aspect of scripture is authoritative and inspired by God. And, you know, we talked about that with Jesus. He clearly saw all of scripture as uh, authoritative. Paul says in Romans 15, whatever was written in the Old Testament was written for our instruction. Um, if, it's, if it's erroneous, if it's a lie, then how could that be written for our instruction? If the Old Testament contains errors, how could whatever's written in the Old Testament be for our instruction? Jesus says the disciples are foolish men because they are slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. And when Jesus uses that phrase prophets, he's talking really about the whole Old Testament. Okay, here, here's some consequences for those who deny inerrancy. The first is that uh, it undermines our, the, the whole talk tonight's about trusting in the Bible as our ultimate authority. Not our emotions, not our reason, not tradition, not science, but the scriptures. And if, if we can't 
bank our life on it, then how can we trust that with all of our life? We can't. Number two, denying inerrancy puts our minds in authority over Scripture because we will be passing judgment on God's Word instead of God's Word passing judgment on us. So if we have to pick and choose and try to decide, okay, what's inspired and what's not, what's inerrant and what's not, then who ends up being the arbiter of truth? You are. And what's interesting is that when people adopt that view, it's funny how the Bible starts looking more and more like their current culture and adopting the moral practices of that current culture. It's, it's interesting how that happens. Okay, we're going to finish up with um, what you guys have been, a few of you have been asking questions about. So which, who decided which books to include? Okay, uh, before we go on, any questions up to this point? I know some of this is just, uh, uh, you know, going over things, the fundamentals. Maybe you've, you've thought about this before, but I think it's always good to, to remind yourselves of, of the uh, authority of the Scriptures. So who decided which books to include? We talked about the Old Testament and how, generally speaking, from very early on, uh, there was an agreed-upon canon in the Hebrew Bible. We're going to get to the Apocrypha in just a second. So when it comes to the New Testament, there were four different categories of books. And this is not your notes, so you might want to jot this down. There were books that were automatically received. Just immediately, their credibility was just, there was no debate. The Gospels were circulating very early on. Um, way before they were accumulated into one book. So received books. The second one are rejected books. These are books that they just immediately were like, nope, not, you know, and I'll tell you how they determine that in just a second. The third category are disputed books. Now, these are the ones like Hebrews. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. So there was some dispute on whether it was a part of the canon uh, the book of James was disputed. Uh, second and third John, Jude, Revelation were disputed. Now the key is it doesn't mean they weren't treated authoritatively. There just was some, they needed, they needed to have conversations about whether, you know, it, they were all being circulated. So it wasn't like some Christians didn't have access to some of these, but there was still some, some disagreement on whether they fit the categories. And then the final, the fourth type of book is a heretical book. Think of like uh, the Gnostic Gospels are really would be heretical books. Uh, Marcion put together his own kind of mixing and matching of the scriptures that was a heretical version of the Bible. So here was the criteria to determine whether it was received, rejected, disputed, or heretical. Was it written by a prophet or an apostle? And this is in your notes. Does it fit with the rest of Scripture? Has it been consistently accepted and used by the people of God? And does it display the power of God to change lives? And closely associated with that is its self-authenticating nature. Um, so it's interesting today, there's a prominent pastor, mega church pastor, over 20,000 members in his church. Y'all would probably all know him if I said his name. He recently preached a series of sermons that said that the, uh, you know, the Old Testament is, is really essentially not for us as Christians. It's an old covenant. We, we don't need it now. And in fact, he, he goes as far as to say that we're really not a people of the book. We're a people of a historical event that is the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that happened in history. So if somebody shows that there are errors in the Bible, it doesn't matter because our faith is in this historical event, not the Scriptures. Pretty bold statement. What he's trying to do, once again, is to, to protect our faith from being compromised by you know, scientific discoveries or, or you know, new discoveries in biology or, or whatever, 
And if you root it in history, then you don't have to worry if somebody undermines the Bible. But what's the problem with that? To say that we, it doesn't matter what happens to the Bible, our faith is in this historical event, which it is, but what's the problem with that logic? What's our access to that historical event? What's that? There is, but what, what's, what are we putting our faith in of that historical event? The, yes, the, the writers of the Bible tell us what to believe about that event. Don't forget, there were people at the foot of the cross that saw Jesus die, felt the earthquake, and the temple robe, you know, robes were torn in two, and they still didn't believe. What we all need is an inspired interpretation of this historical event. That's the scriptures. We got to have that or it's just another criminal who died on the cross. Y'all tracking with me on that? And so we, 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 have to, we, have to, we have to put our hope and trust in the Bible. We can't deny that. Um, so the first collection of all the, the New Testament as 27 books in one writing that we know of is Athanasius in 367 A.D. That was, he wrote an Easter letter um, to a group of believers, and it included all 27 books of the New Testament that we have today. That was 367 A.D. But here, here's something to remember. We have to distinguish between an idea and a defense of an idea. For example, all the way back to the beginning, the, the New Testament church believed in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, three persons in one God, the Trinity. They believed it. But they hadn't articulated that belief doctrinally. So they had the idea, but they, they didn't have a need to defend that idea because everyone kind of embraced it. So when did they need to start defending the idea of the Trinity? When people started questioning the idea of the Trinity. So they all believed it, but then when somebody started attacking it, they had to defend it. And that's when the councils came together, like the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, and they put together a formulation on, here's what we believe about the Trinity. They'd always believed it. They just didn't need to defend it because no one was attacking it. So Athanasius wrote this Easter letter saying these are the 27 books of the, of the New Testament. And there was this discussion and debate about what books to include. Why was that happening? Because they needed to defend these books because there was people that were attacking it and, and adding and, and subtracting. And it was an idea they always believed in, but it wasn't until later on that they needed to defend that idea. You tracking with me up to this point? We're kind of, I know some of this is, a little bit heady, but uh, okay, questions at this point. All the books of the New Testament, except for Hebrews, uh, were written by first-hand eyewitnesses or those who had a direct connection to first-hand eyewitnesses. The Gnostic Gospels, for example, were written centuries later using uh, disciples' names, like the Gospel of Thomas, but they, it wasn't written by Thomas, and it was written by someone hundreds of years later, and so there wasn't that direct connection to Jesus, and therefore it wasn't treated as canonical. And then the heretical. Yeah, the rejected is just, uh, it's probably books that we don't even know about. It's just essentially the things that didn't even... You know, the heretical books actually were leading people astray. The rejected ones were just obvious to everyone. So I don't even, I can't even think of one off the top of my head with that, but that's, that's a good question. Um, but yeah, any questions up to this point? Yes, sir. No, I think, I, think, uh, I think we still to this day wonder about certain aspects of the Bible. And 
just because there's discussion or debate or dispute doesn't necessarily mean there was any sense in which it shouldn't be included. And so I'd have to, I'd have to go and do some research on that. I don't know how the Jewish you know, rabbis of today handle Esther, but uh, so I don't think I can answer that from a Jewish perspective. So what about the Apocrypha? Um, the Apocrypha, as I've said before, were highly debated, were never included in the Hebrew Bible, um, were received as authoritative by some early church fathers, like Augustine, and by others it was rejected, and by, by some they were treated as, as just helpful Christian literature, like we have many books today that we go to uh, as references that supplement the Bible. So um, it wasn't until the Council of Trent in 1546 that the Apocrypha was officially treated as canonical in the Catholic Church. It had been debated, and some Catholic theologians embraced it, some didn't, but it wasn't until 1546 in response to the Reformation that, uh, that they essentially the Pope made it official that the Apocrypha was a part of the, the canon. Um, the Eastern Orthodox Church also includes the Apocrypha in their Bible. So the Protestant Church does not include the Apocrypha, and there are a few reasons for that. One is that there's no reference, there's no direct reference to the Apocrypha by Jesus or any of the other authors in the New Testament. Um, and then there are, there are I mentioned with the, uh, how do you determine if it's canonical, um, does it fit with the rest of Scripture? A lot of the apocryphal books contain inconsistencies and, and even many people say historical errors and, it, and it, doesn't, it doesn't hold the same level of weight as, other, um, as the other canonical books in, in our Bible. So essentially, uh, the vast majority, all Protestant theologians reject the Apocrypha as canonical. The vast majority of theologians in the early church, uh, Catholic or otherwise, were very skeptical of those books. And then the Jewish uh, theologians in the first century early church, uh, most of them rejected the Apocrypha because they, they were looking at the Hebrew Bible as the authoritative Bible, not the Septuagint. So unfortunately, that might not be a fully satisfying answer for some of you, but um, I would encourage you to, 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 to look at those books and see how, see how they differ from the books that are included in our, in our um, Old and New Testament that we have today. Um, but yeah, so what, what questions do you have about the Apocrypha? The one person I was hoping was here for that is not. Um, yes, sir. Yeah, the Council of Trent essentially was a reaction to the, uh, the Reformation. And at that council, they made it official that the Apocrypha would be permanently included in the, the Catholic Bible. Of course, the Reformers rejected the Apocrypha because of the reasons I just stated. The inconsistencies, the uh, lack of cohesion with the rest of the, um, the Bible, and the fact that most Jewish scholars... Uh, it was never included in the Hebrew Bible, which dates back earlier than the, the Greek Bible, Old Testament. Any other thoughts on that? Sure. I mean, you know, there's once again, uh, the word God doesn't have to be mentioned for God to be present and providentially acting in that historical narrative. And, and Esther is a historical account. And um, 
so yeah, I don't, I don't think it's a great argument just to say that because it doesn't mention God specifically that it's not a part of God's redemptive plan. And we see clearly in the story that it was a key part of God's redemptive plan to, to save a people for himself. He used her in, a, in an amazing way with that. And so it fits into to that narrative. Ultimately, my we'll, we'll do questions here for the last, we got maybe four or five minutes, but my hope tonight is... Um, that for those of you who are already convinced, which I'm, I'm assuming that most of you are, that the Bible is authoritative and trustworthy, that it just bolsters that. Um, and that we're living in a, in a culture today, and some of your kids and grandkids are, are buying into the idea that true freedom today means rejecting any external authority and just living however I see fit and expressing whatever's going on inside of me. And that does not lead to human flourishing. Um, what leads to human flourishing is allowing the scriptures to, to shape, mold, and conform your life because it is the God of the scriptures that, that, that knows how humans flourish, and that's in relationship with Jesus Christ by faith. And... Uh, so there's a lot at stake around this, this idea of maintaining the trustworthiness and authority of the Bible um, in our church, in our home groups, in our families. Like it is the source of objective, absolute truth um, that, uh, that guides our lives. So let's take just a few minutes and if you have any questions. Yes, sir. Well, what's your? <clears throat> right. Yeah, I mean, I I don't even think, uh, you know, secular historians today doubt the historicity of Jesus. Um, in that time period, even if they don't believe that he's the Messiah or the Son of God, there doesn't seem to be any debate about the historicity of Jesus, except for some fringe, you know, New Testament scholars that, honestly, their life goal is to undermine the authority of the Scriptures, and so the dating of it, yeah, and okay, so. There's a perceived error, and you know, I, what I would ask is where where do you get that information on on the debate about the consensus or the census? Probably from a historian, a historian, or a book, or yeah. So the problem with that is that our the problem with that is that many people take as authoritative books written by people today, and yet they don't take books written in the first century as authoritative. So our only access to these events that happen in the first century is through archaeology or the writings of scholars and historians and and you know primary sources along the way. So it's funny how when people talk about Jews in the first century and what they believed, they oftentimes forget to talk about what Paul believes, which we have his writings. He was a Jew in the first century, and, and he had written certain things about Jesus. We, 
we want to pick some sources and not others. And I think the reason behind that is that some people have a vested interest in, in you know, undermining the historicity of, of these accounts. So, I, I mean, I'd have to, once again, that, that's a specific question that I'd have to go back and look at the data that's out there. But, I mean, there's a multitude of theologians, historians that have, I'm sure if you Googled what you just described, you would, you would find multiple sources that you can do your own study and, and come to a, a conclusion on that. And we're not called to shut off our, our brains. And, I mean, uh, our faith is informed by reason. It's faith-seeking understanding. So if you have problems with it, go dive in and, and find some of the answers. But there are people who've spent their whole lives talking about these issues um, so there's, there's answers out there. Any other questions or confusions or? All right. Well, uh, thank you guys for letting me join you tonight. And next week you get to jump into Job and I'm sure you'll have a bunch of questions for Bill for that, which he'll save to the end, but, uh, really appreciate it. Let me pray for us as we go and, uh, and hopefully I'll see you guys soon. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. Um, I thank you for these men and women who faithfully come every night to sit under the teaching of your word, uh, which Bill does so well, just walking through uh, what the Bible has to say, what you have to say about, uh, about your people and about your plan of redemption. And so, Lord, we thank you. Pray your blessing on everyone in here tonight. And we love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.